0: I'm very glad to be with you today to get an opportunity to share with you and to get an opportunity to worship with you. When I was a little girl, I was obsessed. I think I've shared with you before that my parents thought I was pretty weird because of these little quirks that I had about me. Well, this is another of those uh, things that my parents just shook their heads, couldn't figure it out. But when I was a little girl, I was obsessed with the night sky and with the moonlight. I really was. I grew up in the desert where at night, the sky literally looked like a velvet blanket with a million stars. And it looked like it was close enough to reach out and touch. And and if you've ever been in the desert at night when there's a full moon, it's like the most surreal um, dawn because you can see perfectly you can, it, its everything is outlined, but it's outlined in black and white. So it has, it has a beauty that is so intense and so real that it literally made me want to cry. And I would often sit in a chinaberry tree, which was outside of one of the places that we would stay, and I would stare up at the sky and my head was filled with wonder, filled with wonder and awe. And I I I really couldn't contain myself. I didn't quite know what I was feeling, but it was just so intense. And this is the weird part. If there was a shaft of moonlight anywhere, I would go and stand in it. If it was coming in through the window, if if I saw it underneath a tree, I would go outside and try to stand in it. And I felt like just being in that space, there was something that was special about it. That the unknowable God, my creator, was whispering to me and squeezing my heart was a story that I did not yet have to tell. This was truly an introduction, I think, to worship. This was the first act of worship was to be in wonder and not have words for it. John of the Cross calls God nada. Because nada meaning nothing. And it wasn't because John of the Cross felt that God was nothing. But it was God was that which you come to when you run out of words. When there is no longer any way to explain it or to understand it. And that the the very essence of God was reaching into my humanness. And reminding me that there was something or someone bigger than me and that I was not alone was an intricate part of worship. But I want you to be mindful of what I'm telling you because this worship was not dependent on my words, my prayers, my songs, my scripture. It wasn't really dependent on any of the things that we associate with what we do in worship. But that experience of that first experience of worship was about listening. It was about an openness. And it was finally about a communion that I didn't quite have a handle on, but that I was willing to admit was a mystery that I wanted to be integrated with today we continue to explore scripture and the historical understanding of the purpose of church. Summed up in the six great ends. we've looked at the proclamation of the gospel, we've looked at the shelter, nurture, and spiritual fellowship of the children of God, and today we focus on the third great end, which is the maintenance of divine worship. Will you pray with me? God, I... And even remembering those moments, I feel such emotion welling up inside me. I pray that you will calm my trembling heart as I remember the way that you approached me without me knowing your name, without me knowing any doctrine, without me knowing even the story yet you approached. And I know, God, that it is your spirit that approaches us this morning. And I pray only, God, that we might have a spirit of listening, a spirit of openness, so that we might experience that communion with you. Amen. What I didn't know when I was a child was that I was experiencing what humankind I think has been experiencing since all, from all time. That we as humans are, we seek our meaning and our purpose as a natural course of development. That's one of the first things that we do is, why am I here? Who am I? It's part of our DNA. And I believe that that question is the first step in worship. Because we want to know what this is all about. We want to know where we came from and why we're here. So we discover places of ancient worship and we realize that we're not the first ones in trying to understand this. We're not the first ones who are trying to make sense of the relationship to the rest of creation and beyond. Now the baby effort of this is the Jewish religion. The Jewish religion is about 3,500 years old. So we know that at least 3,500 years ago people were stopping in the desert and piling up stones and worshiping as a place, a sacred place, to remember, a marker, to remember what God was doing for them. But then we understand that 4,000 years ago, Stonehenge, there were people who were sitting out looking at the seasons and understanding that somehow the seasons and the nature was speaking to them about a holy and divine And then we have the pyramids, which were a place of burial, but also a place of worship. And they were 4,600 years old. And then we have Newgrange, some place I just visited this past year in Ireland. Newgrange, believe it or not, is older than all of these. And Newgrange is an ancient burial site and also a space of worship. And the hieroglyphics are so old, nobody has been able to interpret them or unlock the key to them. They're over 5,000 years old. Now, six miles from Urfa, an ancient city in southeastern Turkey, Klaus Schmidt has made one of the most startling archaeological discoveries of our time. This is serious worship. And I don't mean serious worship. I mean serious worship. As in the dog star. He made one of the most startling archaeological dis, uh, discoveries. It is a massive carved stones and they are over 11,000 years old. They're 7,000 years older than Stonehenge. They are, they are crafted and arranged by historical people who, at that time, had not yet developed metal tools or potter- pottery. All they knew how to do was arrange huge rocks. Why did they do that? The megaliths predate Stonehenge, like I said, by 7,000 years, and the place is called Gobelki Tepe. And Klaus Schmidt, a German archeologist, has been working here for more than a decade. And he points to the great stone rings, one of them which is 65 feet across, and he says, this is the first human-built holy place. Because of its intentional design is to believe to be the holy site where they came to worship the brightest star, Sirius, which in the constellation is the dog star. They were people looking for meaning. There were people looking, why are we here? They were people looking for something outside of themselves. But listen, this archaeological find suggests a novel theory of of civilization. In fact, it turned it upside down. Because before this find, scholars long believed that only after people learned to farm and lived in settled communities, could they have the time, organization, and resources to construct temples and support complicated social structures. But because of this find, many scholars now believe that it's flipped to be the other way. That people came together in worship first. They came together compelled by the question, who are we and who are we in relationship with this world? They came together as children sitting in a chinaberry tree and standing in a shaft of moonlight. They came together together. The extensive coordinated effort to build a monolith literally laid the groundwork for the development of complex societies. Worship and human questioning of our existence is what pulled people together and created community. Our scripture lesson today is from the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons by Moses. It presents Moses standing on the plains of Moab. With all of Israel, if you can imagine, assembled in front of him, and he's preaching. It's his last sermon. When he completes it, he will leave his pulpit on the plains. He will go up into the mountains, and he will die, having never crossed into the promised land. We can read this text, and we can read into it warnings, but I don't see warnings in this. What I see is reminders. And they are reminders for an ancient, ancient people of what we need to be reminded for all the time, of who we are, of who created us, to remember our story and to recall their story and remain humble in the light of the truth of it. Listen then to Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 18. Take care that you do not forget the Lord your God, By failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. When you have eaten your fill and have built fine houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks have multiplied and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then do not exalt yourself. Forgetting the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness, an arid wasteland with poisonous snakes and scorpions. He made water flow for you from flint rock and fed you in the wilderness with manna that your ancestors did not know, to humble you and to test you, and in the end to do you good. Do not say to yourself, my power and my might of my hand have gotten me this wealth." But remember the Lord your God, for it is God who gives you power to get any wealth so that God may confirm God's covenant that God swore to your ancestors as God is doing today. This is the word of the Lord. Listen to these words. Line by line, the writer strips back the layers of all that becomes our identity and our sense of worth. Line by line, we are reminded of who we are. Line by line, we are reminded of who God is. And line by line, we are reminded of the true nature and meat of this relationship that we have with God. God is not our buddy. That's made clear in this scripture. That's made clear in all of scripture. And why is that so important? Because to relegate God to being our buddy, The one who's there for us, gives us this, does this for us, does that for us, puts all the focus on us rather than the focus of of our worship, which is the focus is on God. And line by line, this scripture reminds us of who we are to God. Those of you who have participated in Ash Wednesday service, you'll recall that as the ashes were placed on your hand or on your forehead, that you might have heard words like this, from ashes you have come and to ashes you will return. You see, this Ash Wednesday, this night of coming together is a way of us reminding ourselves of who we are in relationship to creation, in relationship to the creator, that we're mortal, This is a reminder of the same order as our scripture. Do not forget who you are. We cannot, nor should we, deny our mortality. We have to be reminded sometimes that we have a beginning and a middle and an end. In Ernest Becker's classic novel, The Denial of Death, He suggests that the denial of death and not our sinful and unclean nature is the obstacle we confront in the season of Lent. To acknowledge that God is the designer of our lives and that death is a natural part of that design is to affirm affirm the gift of our mortality. And why is our mortality a gift? Death is the great teacher. To deny death is to ignore the possibilities of human meaning and purpose. Are we here for a reason? And do we live our lives living into those questions and into that reason? We have but one life and it's wild. So much is beyond our control and comprehension and life is very precious. It's a remarkable thing that we are here. We're, we are to honor the privilege of existence and knowing ours is limited and to do our part to assure that the next generation will have the privilege and opportunity as well. We have this, in Mary Oliver's words, we have this wild and precious life, this one wild and precious life. And how shall we live it? That's the gift of mortality. It is a reminder, an intensity, an intensifier of what we are doing right now in the moment. But most importantly, we are called to keep our attention not on what has been created, but on the source and the author and the great imagineer of everything that has been created, including us. It's based on the understanding that our creator is not just intimately engaged with us in, when the psalmist puts it, as we're being put together, knitted together piece by piece in our mother's womb, and then God delivers us into the world and that's it. No, this is a reminder that God continues to guide and inspire and discipline and equip and comfort, protect and provide for us our whole life long. When I do memorial services, this is such an important uh, experience of God that I want to I want to relate to all of those who are there gathered to celebrate this person's life. To say to them God was with them when they, when they had their first cry and their first tear and God was with them when they fell in love for the first and last time and God was with them when they breathed their last breath. That God is not separate from our lives, that God is our creator the source of everything. And this is a joyous reminder, I believe, that our Creator has chosen to have an active relationship with us rather than one based on subjugation and slavery, rather than God being the puppet master or, or, or the great dictator or Santa Claus or the tooth fairy or whoever else you want God to be. The Scriptures remind us of the reality of God of who God really is, apart from our illusion, apart from the, the God that we have created in our own image that serves our own needs. We are invited to come back to be in wonder at the God that really is. Who are we? We are the created. And who is God? God is the creator, now, if we take all of these pieces together and we understand that the worship, worship is in the DNA of people. I mean, I know the, the earth is 4.3 billion years old and this was only 11,000 years ago that they discovered this. But what's to say in the centuries to come they want to discover it further back than that? All I know is since time has ever been that we have had a need to worship something outside of ourselves. So it's in the DNA of people. And we take those pieces and we take the reminders from Scripture and the warnings from Scripture and the relationship of creature to created. Is it any wonder that we would regard worship, and I mean worship, along with services of worship and acts of worship as the very heart of everything that we do together as a people? It would be no surprise to understand that worship is the heart of everything we do together in a church. The, word, the words of the great ends really don't inspire me much. When it says the maintenance of divine worship reminds me of like a, a, somebody in overalls sweeping up the church afterwards. It doesn't convey the incredible energy and focus on keeping the main thing the main thing. It's, but I understand that what it's talking about is not talking about preserving any particular music or language or form of worship. Worship is not preservation of all that has been done by those who came before us, although we want to honor those things. Otherwise, but if if that was the whole purpose of it, then we as Presbyterians would still be limited to singing the Psalms without accompaniment, to hour-long sermons, God forbid, or even to a Latin Mass. Rather, the maintenance of divine worship means that a mark of the Christian church will always include worship. Because it's what we do. It's the heart of who we are as people learning our faith. I think it's the heart of all of us tree climbers standing in the moonlight people who find a home and a resonance with a creator that would gift us and call us before we even knew the story that we were being called to. It's what we maintain wherever the church gathers in whatever time and place. It's a mandate to remember who we are and who God is. It's a reminder that our relationship with God is at the heart of every relationship we have with the created world, not just with each other, but with all of the world. It's permission to joyfully celebrate a God who loves and gives and is faithful and constant. God doesn't change who God is. It's an invitation to express the deepest part of our humanity from all time. You know, every week, it's a, a great deal of thought and prayer goes into every worship service that we have. You may not know that. You may think that we all just whip together at the last minute. You'll know when that happens, believe me. But we actually pray about it. We actually think about it. We study it. We think of the flow. We think of all of these things. So that you will have an openness and an invitation to experience God. That's our job. Is to create, is to open, throw open every door that we can think of. So that you might experience God that you might be awakened to notice and see and pay attention to the Spirit of God moving among you. But I guarantee you this, that the very best way to enhance, to deepen, and to experience God in the most profound way in worship is what you walk through those doors with. And when you walk through those doors with remembering who you are and who God is and to remember with awe and to remember with mystery by your humble sense of your place in God's story, by your willingness to trust your creator enough to follow the way that has been provided for you by the teachings and by the revelation of Jesus. You follow, I guarantee you, that those experiences will shape you and deepen you and allow you to experience that open door in a more profound way than anything we can come up with. That's your work. That's your work. While we're working all week to do all of this, you have your work to do as well. May God bless you in that work. And maybe maybe along with the work that you have to do, I encourage you, sometime find a shaft of moonlight and stand in it. Sit on a hillside, and if you're able, climb a tree and simply gaze in wonder. You'll be amazed, simply amazed, at what might come to you the next time you come to worship.